turn with me to Psalm 68 tonight. I did not make it through that one. I don't know if you did. When you think about who you are going to see, and who you want to see, there's a lot of emotion that uh, comes, especially in light of just thinking about death and heaven. And <sighs> Praise the Lord for his word and the truth. We're going to read through Psalm 68 portion of it tonight from verse 15 and down through verse 27. And I trust we'll kind of catch up in our uh, study of this psalm and uh, make some progress, proceed through it. Uh, pun intended, this is a procession we're following. And uh, we have, as we've looked at the beginning of the psalm, we've seen the song of the ark or the prayer that began the procession of the ark as it was transferred from the place where in God's providence it was and then heading towards Jerusalem, the place where it would rest. And of course the ark is symbolic of the presence of God and God has been on the march certainly from his days when he walked with Abraham, as uh, he covenanted with Abraham, but then as that people grew and then they were in the land of Egypt, he then took them out and led them out. And as this psalm proceeds, there's a, a call to the people to praise the Lord who rides on the clouds ahead of them, leads them out. You see that? In uh, verse 4, where it says, Sing to God, sing praises to His name, lift up a song for Him who rides through, and the word there that's translated deserts is also translated clouds. It's steps, or you can think of uh, clouds that are on top of one another, perhaps. But that was the picture as they came out of Egypt, as God was leading them out, leading them in a cloud, leading them, of course, to Sinai, and then... Uh, eventually to the promised land, and that recollection of history begins in verse 7. It goes from the wilderness, so first of all Egypt, through the wilderness, and then eventually ends up in the land of Israel. I think you see that in verse 9. Uh, reference to the inheritance of God and the settling of his people in the land, and then his victories. And this is what occupied our time the last time we were in the psalm, is from verse 11 down through verse 14, a historic victory in Canaan. Judges 4 and 5 give us the story there of what took place when God 
brought about a great victory. This is not the victory with Joshua. It's the victory that followed that as they retook the land from Jabin, king of Canaan, and uh, Deborah, the prophetess, and Barak were a part of that. And some of the imagery in those verses, 11 through 14, is taken from Judges 4 and 5. So there's a, a picture of God's on the march, his victorious leading his people, and that's one of the victories. And then he comes to the place where he has appointed, and this is what we're going to read, the place that he has appointed is the place where he is going to dwell, and that's Jerusalem. That's what we're going to be reading about here, God's um, presence there at Jerusalem. So beginning at verse 15, it says, The mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation, Selah. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may shatter them, or may be bathed in blood. It's a picture of their victory over their enemies. End of verse 23. The tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. Verse 24. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God and the congregations, even the Lord, you who are the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin the youngest, ruling them, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. So when we look at verses 15 through 18, again, if the procession of the ark is moving along, its destination is Jerusalem, the peoples who are gathered together and taking the ark, led by David, if it happened in his day, I believe it did, based on scripture testimony, this is the occasion, then there's at least representatives from the tribes, I think that's referenced there in verse 27, when it speaks of Benjamin, Judah, Zebulun, Naphtali, representatives or princes among them, and we'll come to those verses, but that's the, the picture, a group of people who have taken the ark, and as they're proceeding with the ark, there's a song that they're singing to God, celebrating his leadership of the nation and who he is, as they're making the way, sort of on a march, there to Jerusalem, the place of his home. I like what one preacher said. I was listening to some sermons, or I think it was one sermon on this psalm, and I was trying to just hear how someone else handled this psalm. And the point that this uh, preacher made was that God is coming home. Now, we know God is in heaven. We know God 
is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in terms of a place on earth where his presence is said to dwell, it's at Jerusalem. It's Zion. And so he's coming home. He's been on the march with his people, but he's coming home, having won the victory, provided for them, coming to a resting place where his people can worship him and he can provide and certainly lead them. And I think that's really a helpful way to look at what's happening in this psalm. I titled this uh, psalm as I thought through what I thought to be the theme, the majestic God of Israel. There's certainly more than that, but I do want to remind us that this psalm is about God. It's about God on the march with his people, winning victories, being worshipped, and eventually calling for the worship of all the nations. And I want to remind us that that is the scope. Look down at verse 32. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. And those nations are called to ascribe strength and praise to God. And so God, yes, comes home. He comes to that place on earth where his presence is said to dwell, though we know he's everywhere, but in terms of a visible appearance or his presence with his people, there he is. And then from there, who are the objects, or the subjects rather, of his kingdom? Who serves him? Well, he is God. And so they may not serve him yet because of rebellious hearts, but they're called to. And if they refuse to, there is judgment. And we do see that theme as well in this psalm as as the psalmist speaks of the enemies of God. But let's take a look at this section here in verse 15 and down through verse 18, which I've just called a a contemplative or a contemplating look at God. Um, the, The language focuses first upon a mountain, a mountain which God chose in contrast with some great mountains nearby. The great mountains nearby are the mountains of Bashan or the mountain of Bashan, this mountain with many peaks. When it says a mountain of God, we're talking there about a mighty mountain. And so there's a a picture of a great, big, huge, majestic mountain. And this mountain is addressed. There's some who suggest this could be Mount Tabor, which is one of the taller mountains in Israel. But the question is asked to the mountain in light of its great size and bulk, why are you envious? Look at what it says in verse 16. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? So this is something that tells us God's choice in terms of the place where he determined to dwell, it wasn't the mightiest mountain on earth. It wasn't Everest, for sure. If you're thinking about mountains in the United States, uh, it wasn't any of the majestic Rockies. 
it, it's not the, the, the tallest, the highest, the greatest. It's more like the tallest mountain in Ohio. Have you ever been to it? I, I didn't know this as I was studying for this uh, message. I thought this would be an interesting illustration. Campbell Hill. You ever heard of it? Neither had I. Maybe you have. Compared to the tallest mountain I've ever been to in Colorado, either the Continental Divide or very uh, uh, not much shorter than that, the area um, in Denver where the mountains just jut up, we decided to go there one day when we were out there. And we got up high enough. I think the person who was planning the agenda for that day, wanted to get to Pikes Peak and realized, didn't realize that we weren't in the right area for Pikes Peak, but we wanted to go to a place. And so we ended up at this place where as the higher we got up with this diesel van, the smoke just started pouring out of the exhaust. I don't think there's something about that they couldn't handle it. But you get up at the place where the wind is blowing and uh, you actually see mountain goats and you can see for long distances, huge mountain. I don't think Campbell Hill's anything like that at 1,549 feet. And in terms of Jerusalem and Zion, this hill compared to these other mountains, this is the place that God chose. Jerusalem, Zion, this hill. But the mountains nearby and even the greatest mountains are jealous. Why? Because God dwells there. That's what makes this place so wonderful. Notice what it says. At the mountain which God has desired for his abode. This is his dwelling place. And then it says, surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Well, we know there's a heavenly Zion. There's a heavenly Jerusalem. And so there's a picture on earth of a heavenly reality. So we're talking about though, a geographical location on earth, and the call here is to consider this place and how blessed this place is because God in his presence dwells there with his people. God chooses little things. One writer said, this choice of God, he said, is the kind of paradox that God delights in. Like the choice of David himself, youngest in the family. Like the choice of Bethlehem, this little town. And then he says, indeed, of the things that are not, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. God chooses the little things, and it brings glory to himself to use that little thing in terms of this place. What makes this place great? It's God's presence there. And what a glorious presence What a glorious presence. I'm not just saying that. Look at the text. Where God is, verse 17, the chariots of God are. It says the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You read a verse like that, and really it ought to instill wonder 
as it fires your imagination to see what would that look like, God's presence with the myriads of angels that surround him and serve him. Myriads, you might see in the margin, twice 10,000. This word is only here in the Old Testament. It likely refers not just to twice 10,000, 20,000, but to an incalculable number. And what does David say here as he writes? He says, thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. So there is God in all of his holiness, his uniqueness, his excellence. There is no one like him. And surrounding him are his angels. Now David's not making this up, although we might be prone to think that David's just using poetic imagery here. Because if you go back to Exodus, you won't find a reference to the angels there at Sinai. Sure, you'd find reference to angels as the tabernacle is built and the cherubim are woven into the curtains. The cherubim are placed, the golden cherubim are on the top of the ark, but are there actually angels? Well, we have to get from Moses something that he saw that we didn't see there, but he gave testimony to. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 33... Moses, in Deuteronomy 33, is blessing Israel. And notice what he says, verse 1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Mount Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Or, you can see in the margin, if you have marginal notes, a fiery law for them. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. Again, I mean, what does 10,000 angels look like? And what would it look like for the most glorious being, God himself, to be in the midst of all those angels? And those angels flying around him, serving him at his will, at his command. Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The courts sat. The courts sat and the books were open. This is God in majesty and glory with his angels around him, serving him. The reference here to the chariots of God is a reference to those angels. And if there are chariots, remember 
Elijah was carried up into heaven by some of these angels. We don't know all of their equipment. From time to time, we see them acting in Scripture. We know it is an angelic army. God is Yahweh of hosts, and those hosts are His servants, the angels who serve Him perfectly. And I would just encourage you, as I have before, as we've looked at this psalm, look at that. God in His majesty dwelling among his angels who serve him perfectly. And if you could see into that cloud, I love what one person said, that cloud wherein God dwells, when someone penetrates that cloud and is able to see the seraphim or the cherubim, this person said, when prophetic vision penetrates the thick darkness, the cloud is seen to be alive with winged creatures, with cherubim and seraphim. Six-winged seraphim. The cherubim, his throne bearers. Read Ezekiel chapter 1. The seraphim are covering their face. They're covering their feet. They're flying about, and what are they calling out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Look at that. There is nothing on earth like that. There is no one like that. This is God. This is God's picture of himself in Scripture. Now, I'm referencing other passages, but if you put them all together and you're looking at what it looks like to see the presence of God, there are certainly angels there. And God, who does not need angels still created them to serve him. And those angels, what does the book of Hebrews say, quoting the psalm, that those angels are sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. They serve us. But they do so at the command of God. Ultimately, they serve God. So what a beautiful verse. What a beautiful picture of the glory of the holiness of God, as God ascends to that mountain. And that's the next verse. Look at verse 18. He says, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord may dwell there. This is a reference, I believe, to God's enthronement in Zion. This mountain that is spoken of, that is his abode, verse 16, and his dwelling presence with the angels around him, when he comes to take his seat, it is in a high place. It's in the place of his appointment. The idea of his ascension on high and his leading captive. Captives means that when he ascends, he has come from the battle and he is victorious, and so those captives come with him. That means there's victory, and there certainly was victory in Canaan, as it's described in verses 11 through 14. There there were captives. If you look at the details of Judges 4 and 5, there there were captives from that battle that was a sign of the victory. Of course, spoils as well. But then notice this. It says, you have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. And this passage may remind us immediately of another passage 
in uh, the New Testament because there is a quotation, but there's a significant difference we'll consider. When it says, you have received gifts among men, the word there refers to, I believe, tribute. So when a king is victorious over another people and he allows them to live, there's not a complete destruction, but he allows them to live, then that subjugated people, that people that has been conquered, now offered tribute. That was an issue with Israel as they were conquered by other nations. Whether or not they would send tribute to the king nearby was an act of faith or not. Uh, It was usually not an act of faith for them to do that. But for them to receive that was not uncommon. Solomon received tribute from the nations around. David, when he conquered the nations, received tribute. But this is God who's receiving tribute. Yes, poetic imagery, but a recognition of his victory. And not just, uh, notice what it says, it says not just men, but even among the rebellious also. So even those who fiercely oppose him, even those who would rebel against him, he has conquered and they are subject. They must be subject to him. So all of this is a sign of his victory and his sovereignty over the nations, the tribute that they give, the captives that he has obtained in battle. But let's take a look at Ephesians for just a moment. And I just want you to notice how Paul references this text. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is calling the church to be unified, humble, serving together around what they're unified in, God, and all of the ones in verses 4 down through verse 6. But then he says, verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And Paul's going to talk a little bit about the application of this to Christ. He says in verse 9, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth, or the lower parts which is the earth, is how I would interpret that. Now, on the surface here, who is Paul talking about that has ascended and given gifts? Who has ascended and given gifts? It's Christ. Who has ascended in Psalm 68? God. Yahweh. Is there an equation between the two? Yes. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus, when he ascended, he ascended victorious over sin, over death, over the devil. And when he ascended, he then gave gifts to men. And as Paul proceeds, the ascension uh, and what followed as he gave the Spirit, he also gave 
gifted individuals to minister to the church. You can see that in verse 11 and following, and we'd certainly say he's still doing that by his grace. But notice the wording in verse 8, it says he gave gifts to men. Whereas if we went back to the psalm, let's go ahead and turn back to the psalm, you have received gifts among men. And some suggest that Paul is intentionally changing the wording to reflect what took place when Christ went to heaven. But there's also this, I think, interpretive way to understand it, and that is when someone receives tribute as a king, the king doesn't necessarily keep all of that for himself. The king also gives gifts he rewards his soldiers. Those who fought in the battle, he gives to them. And so, verse 18, again, you have received gifts among men, but in Ephesians, you have given gifts, received, conquered, gotten tribute, but now it's being given out. And I realize there's some parallels that are breaking down, but Paul is, I think, drawing attention to the, the lordship, the kingship of Christ, his victory, as well as his sharing of the spoils of battle. And you could certainly say that the souls of all of those that he saved by his grace are a part of what he accomplished as he died upon the cross and rose again. So there's a challenge even in looking at this text, but you can certainly see that this is speaking of God in his glory ascending on high, victorious. And then what does he do there? And just real briefly, I want you to look at verse 19. He is ascended, but as he is ascended, is he a detached king concerned only for his own things and not regarding his people? Of course not. No, his ministry to his people is found there in verse 19. And this is a present thing. It's a present tense thing that you could say this is what God is and this is what he does Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation, Selah. Know that ascending to the throne, yes, he is served by his angels, but he blesses his people and he bears their burdens. If you ever read different translations, you might come across the King James Version translation of this verse which says, blessed be God who daily loads us or loadeth us with benefits. And there's definitely a difference in understanding the verse if you take it that way, because it sounds like God is then giving us blessings that is loading us down. Whereas if you read it this way, it's something that God is doing to alleviate the burden. And I have sympathy with really both thoughts because does God load us with benefits? Yes, the scriptures teach that too. And so that translation led different commentators to then take some time to think about the blessings that come our way because of what God 
does for us. And Spurgeon, as he quoted uh, this verse and commented on it, he said, Where shall we begin to survey this vast load of mercies? Were it no more but that He has given us a world to live in, a life to enjoy, air to breathe, earth to tread on, fire to warm us, water to cool and cleanse us, clothes to cover us, food to nourish us, sleep to refresh us, houses to shelter us, variety of creatures to serve and delight us. Here, he says, we're a just load. I mean, if he he did that, that's a blessing. But now, if we add to these, civility of breeding, dearness of friends, competency of estate, degrees of honor, honesty, or dignity of vocation, the favor of princes, success in employment, domestic comforts, outward peace, good reputation, preservation from dangers, rescues from evils. The load is well-mended. That's added on. If yet you shall come closer and add due proportion of body, integrity of parts, perfection of senses, strength of nature, Mediocrity of health, sufficiency of appetite, vigor of digestion, wholesome temper of seasons, freedom from cares. He says this course must needs heighten it yet more. If you shall still add to these the order, power, and exercise of our inward faculties, our mind, enriched with wisdom, art, learning, experience, expressed by handsome elocution, and shall now lay all these together that concern estate, body, and mind, how can the axle tree of the soul but crack under the load of these favors? Look at what God does for us. I mean, He loads us with benefits. If that's not the right interpretation or that's not the right translation of the verse, those are still biblical thoughts. And if He bears our burdens, let's just add that to the benefits that He loads us with. Because I think we'd still see that same truth about God blessing us in other places in Scripture But the verse says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden. The word burden is used in Genesis 44.13, which refers to a weight that is loaded onto donkey's backs. Solomon loaded a heavy yoke on the people. Speaking of the taxes that he laid upon them. And that's the idea here. That there's something that is being carried for us And there's really no word here that could be translated upon them, like he daily loads upon them benefits. Instead, this is something God is doing for us. And what is God doing for us? He's daily bearing our burden. Now, the way that I'm talking here sounds like I'm talking to Fallsbury and Bible Church. And yes, he does. But when he was talking to the Israelites, and this verse is sung in the ears of the Israelites then what is sung is that God, this God, this same glorious God through all the angels worship, this same God who is majestic in holiness, that same God bears the burdens of his people. He carries their burdens. And if you look at the nation of Israel from the time they left Egypt and all the way into the promised land with all of their sin and wickedness and all the things that happened, all of that, God, he certainly endured, but he carried them through. He brought them through. And when they sinned, he rebuked them. When they called out to him, he again intervened and helped them. 
Listen to me, O house of Jacob, he said in Isaiah 46, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you and I will bear you and I will deliver you. I love this next verse. This is a verse that's worthy of meditation and memorization. Isaiah 63, verse 9, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them, and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. All the days of old. Day by day, the burdens of his people. I think by way of application, what burdens are you bearing? And are you casting those cares upon the Lord? Because he can certainly care for you. He does care for you. He can help you. And what does the hymn say in terms of an application? I must tell Jesus... I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear these burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. So is it trials? Is it temptation? Is it sorrows? Is it affliction? Is it cares? Is there someone who is lost that is on your heart and you can't save them but you want so much for them to be saved? Do you ever cast that on the Lord? That's a burden. We need to continue to cast those burdens on the Lord and He will daily help us. Tempted and tried, that songwriter said, I need a great Savior, one who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, He all my cares and sorrows will share. So for the nation of Israel, with all of those people, God, in, these, in that verse, is said to be able to bear all of their burdens, or as Peter writes, to all the aliens or the Christians scattered throughout these regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, not cities, regions of people. And Peter is able to say to every single one of those churches in all of those regions, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. Every single one of those churches, every single individual in all of those churches, all of his people, Israel, God is able to bear all the burdens of all of his people in this world if we all called out upon him and asked him for help. He is almighty God. He's glorious in holiness. He has angels at his disposal. Call upon his name. Find the refuge, find the help, find the safety in God. 
He is all sufficient. He's there for us. He's there for you. Let's pray. Lord, we bow in adoration. You are majestic in holiness. The chariots of God are 10,000 times 10,000. Myriads of angels serve and worship you. And Lord, we thank you for the glory of your victory as you brought your people in to the land. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the glory of your victory as you did battle with the prince of the power of the air. You did battle with sin and death. And you rose victorious from the tomb. And today we celebrate as we meet together on the Lord's Day. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have strong shoulders to bear us, to bear our burdens. We thank you that you have a listening ear. And even tonight as we have considered this text, we pray that we might call upon your name. And if there's someone here who has yet to put their trust in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, who has yet to confess him as Lord, Lord, would you open their eyes to see him for who he is, that they might turn from darkness to light. We worship you, Lord, and we praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in closing.